welcome to the podcast that unveils the future of investing. In each episode, we explore asset classes, trends and technologies with founders, investors and experts involved in shaping that future. Welcome to the podcast. Today, I have the pleasure to speak to Brennan Spellacy, the co-founder and CEO of Patch, a platform to power climate action. We're going to discover what that means, but it's also the opportunity for me to finally go through a lot of questions I had about ESG investing. So welcome, Brennan. Thank you so much for having me, George. Really appreciate it. So you're calling me from um, California, which is something that I always find delightful. But can you tell us a bit about your background and what brought you to create Patch? Yeah, totally. So I didn't always live in San Francisco. I actually grew up in New York. I'm a dual citizen and I'm American and Canadian. So I then studied chemical engineering at a school called McGill up in Montreal. The reason I studied chemical engineering, though, was actually work in low carbon energy. So I thought Patch is a climate technology business. And I thought the initial way I was going to break into mitigating climate change was developing hydroelectric facilities or geothermal power plants. It ended up not working out. I only got jobs in oil and gas coming out of school. And so instead of doing that, I put the chemical engineering on pause and decided to become a software developer, primarily at two technology startups, the first one being Shopify and the second one being Sonder. Most people have probably heard of Shopify. Uh, if you haven't heard of Sonder, you can think of it as a tech-enabled hotel. I did that for around seven years, say 2014 to 2020. And then in April of 2020, my co-founder and I, Aaron Grunfeld, decided that it was time for us to, to leave Sonder. We had been there from 15 to 1,500 employees, and we were ready to start something of our own. And I really wanted to bring things back to climate. It was the whole reason I had gotten a formal education and starting something new with a very clear bookend in the beginning of the pandemic felt like a really great time to almost come full circle and bring things back. And so we hunkered down and, and developed a patch and that was two years ago. Wow. And then finally, those chemical engineering studies can be put to action. A little bit. It's actually super, it's actually hilarious because I always tell people like, life is certainly not linear and I never thought I'd actually be able to reapply chemical engineering, but now I get to, I only have a bachelor's in chemical engineering and most of our, what we call supply side partners. These are the people who are actually selling carbon dioxide removal on the platform have PhDs, they've been working in the field for a very long time. So I definitely don't want to equate my knowledge to theirs, but it does feel fun to be able to understand what they're saying and what they're telling us about the different technologies enough to then also put it into software, which is really what my strength is. Yes, I can clearly see how the, the two paths collide there with Patch. And can you now give us an overview of Patch? Absolutely. So at the highest level, Patch is a marketplace for procuring what is called carbon dioxide removal. If you think about the climate change problem, there are two major levers we have to pull to minimize climate change. We have to stop polluting or stop emitting. That's called decarbonization. And then there is removing the CO2 that's already in the atmosphere. That's called carbon removal. What Patch does is we build a software platform to make it easy for primarily corporates, so technology businesses of all shapes and sizes, to access different forms of carbon removal. So patch at the highest level is a mark. And then from a supplier's perspective, these are the people who are actually selling the carbon dioxide removal. They view us as a software platform to help them scale and commercialize their business. Right. So can you walk us through how it works for a client? Absolutely. So I'll use EQT because this is a finance podcast. EQT is a very large private equity firm. About $100 billion under management. So they're a patch customer. And they actually made a commitment by 2025 to all of their LPs that they're going to be what's called net zero. And net zero is exactly what I was just describing, where you're uh, reducing your emissions by a certain amount 
ideally around 80%, and then removing the remaining 20%. And that's the net, patch up the net part of the net zero versus just zero emissions, for example. And so they made that commitment to their LPs and they worked with what is called a carbon accounting partner. These are the people who actually do the accounting to understand how much emissions have they emitted. And then once they had that number, that round number, they came to patch and said, hey, we have X tons of carbon dioxide we'd like to remove from the atmosphere. We then give them our software where they can build a portfolio of different forms of carbon removal. There are about eight major chemical pathways on the patch platform representing 50 different entities from which they can buy from. And they built their portfolio in collaboration with our climate solutions team. And then once they're ready to, or once they're ready to lock in the order, they actually transacted on the platform. And there's some behind the scenes work with respect to billing and flow of funds. Uh, we don't really remit funds back to the supplier until they provide us proof of sequestration. So proof that the work has been done. But from a customer's perspective, once you lock that order in, you get your proof of, of, uh, of fulfillment, which is essentially proof of the work that's been done, almost like a receipt. And then you can rest easy and take that and put that in your ESG report or your reporting out to your LPs. Indicates it. So if a firm wants to do that, do they need to necessarily have a carbon audit? They assessment don't have of their... to. Okay. How, how, how does it work without the carbon audit? You know, it absolutely is a possibility to use patch. So patch is purely the transaction layer for carbon removal. And so what that means is we are not going to certify you as an organization as that zero or carbon neutral, uh, you have to come to us with that number. And so some people come to us and say, hey, we actually just want to allocate $100,000 to carbon removal this year and put together a campaign around it. And they're not making a net zero claim. They're not making a carbon neutrality claim. They're simply saying we are allocating $100,000 towards these different initiatives, which we can verify. We can audit that because that's near where that transaction takes place. But if that number, that initial number that they're using to get to net zero is wrong, that's outside of Patch's purview. And that's actually very intentional because the reason we do that is we technically make money off of throughput. So if you push a million dollars to Patch, we'll take between 10 to 15% of that. Typically. So basically maintain the software, allow us to scale, et cetera. And the problem is if we were telling people how much they should actually be removing, we'd be highly incentivized to tell them to remove more, right? And so that's uh, when we think of essentially separation of concerns or, sep or essentially incentive structures, when you get to a certain scale, it's really important to make sure people at scale are incentivized to do bad things. And so structurally, Patch will never tell you how much to remove because of the fact that we are compensated on the fact that we are removing carbon. And very similarly, anyone telling you how much you should remove should definitely not be monetizing the compensation piece. That's like a major conflict of interest and it's something that we typically look out for and make sure we maybe guide our clients in the right direction. We have a huge roster of folks on the carbon accounting front who do those audits that you're describing that, that don't compensate. We have a relationship where we'll send business their way, they'll get that number there, and then they can come back and say, hey, this is what this organization said, I'm now ready to, to compensate. Right. Another question based on what you mentioned earlier is the portfolio. So we mentioned equity, for example, can have an active part in creating their portfolio. Why can't they just say we've done it, we've removed the carbon? They Tell can do that. So we also have off-the-shelf portfolios, but a lot of organizations, because sustainability is such a critical part of the message, they're telling either their partners, their customers, their employees. We found most people actually want to take an active role in building this portfolio. And whether it's they have a specific affiliation with geography, 
We've seen European companies want to make sure their capital is supported in Europe and North American companies, the same thing with North America. We've seen organizations pick projects or initiatives or sequestration techniques based on their business. So we have swimsuit brands who only want to sequester carbon dioxide in what's called blue carbon, which is either kelp sequestration or coastal enhanced weathering because it's in line with their brand. So normally, assuming all the underlying metadata of a unit of carbon is created equal, it, they should be fungible, right? So there's this concept of durability, how long does CO2 stand in the atmosphere for? There are a few other dimensions. Theoretically, it should all be the same. But what we've noticed is that there's actually a huge storytelling component to climate action. And as a result, folks really want to take an active role and figure out what their particular story is going to be. And so normally, this is purely a commodity market. I think you're 100% right, George. That's just not the case with carbon today. There's a huge amount of storytelling. Right. So as a company, I can say, there you go, I've offset my carbon. And what I'm particularly interested in about is the sea or the air pollution or whatever, the forest, something like that. And that's, you provide as a package. Wonderful. And uh, I would just like to understand. So before Patch, what were those companies doing? What were the options for someone who wanted to offset their carbon? So it was fairly limited. And for the most part, it was managed by a series of carbon credit broker networks where it would actually be individuals. Uh, they might be commodities trading houses. They might actually be a carbon desk at like a large bank, like Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, all these large banks have actual carbon desks where they actually enable the trading uh, and buying and selling of carbon credits. And that was typically the that you had. So the activation energy was incredibly high, the cost structure of those types of transactions, the fees actually typically got quite out of hand because they were managed spent by people versus software. Uh, and then finally, it was very patchy in the type of supply people had access to. And so if you were a North American bank, you typically only access to North American inventory, same situation if you were in, in Europe. And so the kind of patch is this, is playing the kind of textbook marketplace playbook where we're minimizing activation energy, driving down to effectively zero, where you don't need to have a relationship with the broker to get started. We're fundamentally changing the cost structure to make it easier for people to participate and therefore increasing liquidity. And then finally, aggregating and standardizing how supply is presented. A lot of these trading desks would present projects to you in the form of spreadsheets, and it would be very difficult to get the true underlying data, as well as storytelling material to actually enable either your marketing team or your compliance team to make sure they understand what's really going on here. And so... Up until a couple of years ago, before Patch and Patch was founded, there weren't very many options, candidly. Mm, understood. And yeah, we mentioned the marketplace and you touched upon the, the other side of the marketplace, but can you expand? So who are the suppliers of those services? That's a great question. So they're primarily, the primary supply side of Patch and market is primarily what are called carbon removal developers. So these are organizations where their core business is to either abate emissions, so prevent emissions from happening, or removing carbon dioxide through those eight or nine major chemical pathways I mentioned, or mentioned earlier. And this is their core business. So people are simply buying them or paying them, excuse me, for the service of please sequester a thousand times done, 10,000 times, et cetera, of carbon dioxide. And they'll do that either with reforestation, direct air capture, which are these large fans that suck CO2 out of the air 
we've seen a lot of kelp work being done with kelp forest development where it's actually kelp instead of forest so it's actually reforestation underwater there's a huge amount of range there but their core business model is making money based off of positive climate if we take one specific example i'll let you choose one they are yeah. funded by equities or i see you've got a great list of clients there and yeah. that's their source of revenue that's what keeps them going in terms of their decarbonization activity that's exactly right so there's an organization we work with called running tide for example where their core business is growing kelp primarily off the coast of north america and iceland and they have a sales team they have four or five maybe six person sales team and that actually goes out and primarily sells to enterprises they sell to the Microsofts of the world and the sales forces of the world and say, they say, hey, you have a really ambitious climate set of climate goals. We can help you with a piece of that. Well, patches is a way to get their sales team way more leverage and way more access to sales. So they don't have to scale their sales team as aggressively because patch can participate and drive some of that top line. So to sum it up uh, in my mind, it's a little bit a Fiverr model where it's typical marketplace. But it's not just about connecting the dots, or at least that's how the marketplaces had started. But now there's a lot more facilitation. There's the choice. There's also every tool that you put in place in order to make sure that there's a meaningful or more meaningful interaction between one side and the other. Exactly right. As well as there's a huge component that's, I think, very important here is this idea of trust and safety within marketplaces. So we tell us a lot in like the, how critical it is with like an Airbnb, for example, where you have to make sure that the homeowner actually owns the home as well as a few other things that Airbnb looks for. We do something very similar with our suppliers, where we're effectively doing KYC, or know your client or know your customer, on all of the suppliers. And we're essentially guaranteeing that the supplier is who they claim. And in a world where if something were to go awry with a particular supplier, we have the legal and financial frameworks in place with all of these different suppliers to mediate that. And so that's something that hasn't existed before. So that's something we're doing on the behalf of our buyers, where historically brokers, if you, the transaction cleared, you were left holding the bag to remedy any sort of problem that might've taken place, which is why a lot of people use patch instead of working with an existing broker network, not just because of the tech enabled piece in the price, but also the amount of security and ability you can sleep at night with, if you will, and exist when you actually transact through patch versus somewhere. So obviously those companies are now having an easier way to decarbonize, right? But do you think that has a meaningful effect on the amount of decarbonization? Uh, yes, totally. So I think for us, we're still early days, right? We're only two or three years into our journey. And so right now we're only facilitating tens of millions of dollars with the volume to the platform. The scale of this problem is going to require hundreds of billions of dollars to be facilitated. To give you some context, about a billion dollars is spent per year. So this ecosystem needs to become around 500 times larger in the next 20 years in order for us to hit our climate goals. And are we on the right track? Certainly. But it's just very early days for, for us. And there's going to have to be for an order of magnitude more of suppliers, buyers, patches to actually enable this to truly happen um, at the scale we need it to. And again, we're talking about just carbon removal, which is actually only 20% of the problem. So zooming out even further, we emit around 50 gigatons, so 50 billion tons of carbon dioxide per year. We are only budgeting essentially to remove 10 gigatons per year of carbon removal, which is already over a thousand times what we do today. The other 40 gigatons per year needs to come from aggressive decarbonization, which is primarily replace fossil fuels with some sort of renewable energy source. 
and mitigating how we use our land, primarily preventing deforestation and, and typically maybe minimizing either like aggressive farming techniques primarily. And so again, to zoom it out even further, like this is actually a fit of the solution, what we're working on, and that needs to become a thousand times larger, which may actually kind of give you an idea of the scale of the problem we're actually looking at. I like that you take a humble approach to this. And if I was to push it even further and try to play the devil's advocate, isn't there something that we can say that, oh, okay, those people are offsetting their carbon emission and therefore they have perhaps less incentive to reduce them in the first place? So in a lot of cases, it's actually more expensive to compensate your carbon ineffectively. And so the incentive for me, in my opinion, we actually have the incentive is there already. So to, get, to get, kind of get very concrete, the average price per ton bought on patch day is about $50 per ton. Um, the way you are going to decarbonize a flight, our business travel is just to not go and make it a Zoom call. And so there's actually, there are going to be some sectors like mining, aviation, that are going to be very mm. difficult to decarbonize. But if you're just a technology business, there is no reason you can't be running all of your servers and employees' electricity on renewables and restricting business travel to a couple times a year. And that will do already pay a massive amount of dividends, just simply making those two switches. And so for me, it's less around, um, it's less around incentive because again, the incentive is to get to net zero and it's going to be prohibitively expensive to get to net zero if you're only using carbon compensation. I think the other thing just to keep in mind as well is even if emissions went to zero, the planet would still be heating. So there is no world where we can purely decarbonize out of this situation. We have built a backlog since the first industrial revolution of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So we need carbon removal at scale. And most climate models in a one and a half or two degree outcome, and for context, for folks listening in who are sure what I'm talking about, there are essentially these climate models that forecast what would it look like if the earth heated one and a half degrees, two degrees, two and a half, three, et cetera. It's usually accepted that the Paris Agreement is going to set that line at that two degrees. That's the point we really don't want to go beyond. Most of those models have us needing to be carbon negative as a civilization in 2050, 2016, 2070. The only way we're going to get there is dramatic decarbonization and scaling of carbon removal in parallel. Gotcha. Now that I understand the, the incentive, it's more like you should do the, the, what you can to reduce and with what you can't reduce, you can offset. That's exactly that, right. That brings in many different topics. One of them is ESG, which I mentioned at the beginning. And I have to mention as well that although one of the topics of this podcast is the future of investing, we never talked about investing for the future because I, uh, I was very cautious about this, let's say, ESG trap. But obviously what you're doing here helps companies bolster their ESG credentials, right? Yeah, at least the E component of ESG. I think what's funny because I think the ESG has been conflated with just environmental action, but it's actually only one third of it. The S is the G step for social and government. So I'm actually personally of the opinion, I, and I'm actually skeptical of a lot of ESG kind of ETFs and funds and ratings that these large banks provide because they're getting overrated and they're getting overloaded with there's so much information you're trying to cram into this one particular rating. You actually lose resolution on what's truly happening, which then typically results in misinterpretation. And then as a result, and as a result, very similar to how you and I feel, distrust because of that misinterpretation. And so I think there actually needs to be some form of deconstruction of ESG personally, where it's a little bit more granular, a bit more specific. And that's what the SEC is trying to get into now by regulating some of these 
environmental claims public companies are making um, or attempting to regulate them. But yeah, no, it's actually quite messy right now. So indeed, yes, I tell social and governance, three wonderful things that if you patch up together, it's hard to make sense of anything. But for our listeners, can you clarify a little bit more what's happening with the SEC? So in the last two to three years, you might have seen in the news, a lot of companies, primarily publicly traded companies, but also some privately make what are called net zero commitments. And so this is the commitment, the most common deadline is 2050, because that's in line with the Paris polls. But there's some doing a little more aggressive, 2040 and 2030, where they're essentially saying, we are going to be net zero by this particular timeline. And the intent of that is actually because these organizations are primarily seeing how good for business operating sustainably is. They see the fact that private equity firms at EQT are slowly moving away from fossil fuel heavy industries and primarily investing in more sustainable businesses. They're seeing that the fastest five to six growing direct to consumer brands all have some sort of sustainability element in them. They see these secular trends that more sustainable business is going to result in better returns and higher top line. And as a result, they want to participate in that. And so there's been a huge of attention, I will say, on making some sort of net zero claim and driving a marketing campaign surrounding that and potentially advocating for themselves, get a better ESG rating by one of these banks, or maybe even getting included in a particular ESG ETF. The reason the FCC is now stepping in, especially as it pertains to climate, is because a lot of these organizations don't actually have legitimate plans to hit that net zero goal. And so the interpretation is that this is effectively misleading investors, both institutional and retail. And if you are making some sort of claim about future product capabilities or, or maybe forecasted revenue or user retention, and there's no grounds that the SEC steps in. And now there's this new category of climate claims that are inflating asset values that, that might not actually have grounds to them. And as a result, the SEC is now kind of moving in and saying, you have to disclose your plan if you're going to publicly announce that you have one. So thanks very much, Brennan. That was a great overview of what's happening, and I think it's a very welcome development. But I've been a skeptic, like I said, from the early days. There's another industry which is very close to what I'm doing, and of course has a bad reputation, which is crypto, which the mining, of course, requires a lot of electricity and therefore produces a lot of carbon emissions. And I know this is something that uh, you've already thought about, so can you give us the lowdown of how crypto could uh, clean its act? Yeah, absolutely. So for those who don't know, maybe as, as a baseline, the reason crypto has been getting so much attention is the electricity intensity associated with, with the mining or computation. So in the case of Bitcoin, it's mining. In the case of Ethereum, it's computation in the form of gas fees. And in the case of other protocols, it's some derivative of one of those two models. I think the thing that's interesting about crypto and the flag it's gotten is primarily because of how quickly it's actually grown, the energy use that is, which as a result is putting the grid under a little bit of extra stress. Uh, and as a result, if the carbon intensity of that electricity is high, so if it's coming from coal or natural gas, that's going to be a highly polluting event. I think the thing, if you can zoom out though, for a moment is there are a lot of things that use a lot of electricity. And if you look at just the last 10, 15, 20, 30 years, essentially whenever you have GDP growth, you typically have energy consumption, as well as a lot of other great things that follow, whether it's like lower infant mortality, improved education, et cetera. And so I personally am of the opinion that blaming one new 
high intensity energy consumer isn't really the right approach, but rather just focusing on decarbonizing the grid. Because a lot of really powerful, exciting things happen when you create abundant, cheap, carbon-free electricity. Where that comes in uh, wind, solar, nuclear fusion. Um, there are a lot of different kind of like opportunities for us to kind of create just simply more power that we can leverage. And it unlocks a lot of great things. And it makes the crypto element a non-issue. There are some crypto components, though, in carbon markets specifically that I am a lot more skeptical of. And so in the world of patch, there are some companies today trying to use crypto and the incentive structures that come with that to drive additional transparency within carbon markets. And so instead of having some sort of centralized marketplace like patch operates, it actually acts like a decentralized protocol to buy, trade, and speculate on top of carbon markets. I personally think that this is... I think going to have a little bit less lapsed in power. I'm actually very bullish on the idea of blockchain specifically because it gives the op like the idea of a decentralized and robust database is actually incredibly compelling as someone who used to work in software. But I found a lot of the incentive structures with respect to crypto typically don't result in the outcomes people want. I think in theory, it makes sense. But usually what I've seen is there are typically the project organizers, there might be 10, 15, 20, 30 of them that in many cases pump and dump specific types of crypto assets. And for me, the the thing that's, I think, confusing to me is the narrative with respect to crypto is you're removing the middleman and democratizing access to finance. And then a lot of the kind of criticism of the traditional banking infrastructure has been these few folks in power are controlling, they're setting the rules, they're controlling interest rates there. Uh, they have access to specific investment opportunities. They have insider information. But I actually don't see how that's any different than what happens with crypto and project organizers. It's just the only difference is that you're democratizing the access to grift, basically, in some cases. And that's not to say I'm anti-crypto, because I think there are a lot of interesting use cases. But in some and a lot of situations, I think the value of it is actually been overplayed. Now, I think in retrospect, I'll probably look like a Luddite. I've really wanted to get crypto consistently so many times. I Honestly, George, I've spent so much time on it, trying to get it, trying to understand why there's so much talent fleeting there. But every single time I've seen people get rugged, people have been unable to describe the fundamentals of why a particular technology is exciting. And now what we're seeing, like what, what's happening with Celsius and BlockFi and everything else right now, like it's, I don't know, I'm at a loss, personally. I'm at a, a loss for words. So maybe it's something yeah. a little bit deeper and you can educate me, but so, I'm, so I'm I just want to say two things about it. I think I totally get your... How that the compel how compelling must be a crypto? So you put crypto into something, and already people are excited. And you can have, I can imagine that crypto carbon free or crypto decarbonization. I feel like I've seen some spams <laughs> about something yeah. like that. So I can imagine how this could be an ultimate pump and dump, which there's so much in crypto. And I also feel like I have to answer with my personal uh, approach on, on on this. So. I've got a minimalistic view of crypto, which I think excludes a lot of things which people are so excited about, Web3, the metaverse, things like that. What excites me about it is that I think it's better infrastructure for finance. You can, if you just think about it, a trade today of, let's say, an equity is extremely complex. It goes through many stages, many layers. In crypto, you can simplify it and therefore make it cheaper, more efficient, etc. And what I'm excited, so that's the infrastructure part. And then what I'm excited about is, again, a, a, a smaller part of crypto is the fact that with what we call DeFi, which again, is not the right term because it's not really decentralized, but you can, in the, as an individual investor, you have all the tools 
that only very sophisticated players could have in the normal markets. And that means that you have a lot of ways to lose money faster, but <laughs> that's not the goal. <laughs> the goal is that you can also create something which is less correlated with the market, which produces yield on a long-term perspective. And that's one of the things that I'm particularly keen on exploring in particular on this bear market. And I'm building a course about it. So thanks for the segue. I'll put the link in the attachment below, but it's, yes, it's an exciting technology, but I, I think there's a, that the, I'm actually very happy that uh, there's a cleanup and that so many, even very well-known projects fail because only once we clean up our act, we can, it's going to be easier for people to sort out uh, what they should do really. So there you go. Anyway. That's my quick take on crypto. Thank you very much. This has been really enlightening for me in terms of decarbonization and also what we put in ESG, even if we've talked just about the E, but you've given a, a great overview. So what's your, uh, as a final question, so how do you see this evolving for Patch and your industry in the near future? Yeah, absolutely. So in, in the near future, I'll describe it as the next 12 months. So we're going to continue to double down on the segments that we're actually partnering with. So we've seen a huge amount of excitement about Patch, primarily in FinTech, e-commerce, Funnily enough, crypto, which will probably taper off for this current downturn, private equity and logistics. And we're going to continue to double and triple down on these categories across both North America, Europe, and we're actually just beginning to enter Japan and the Asian market as well. So for us, it's really just a matter of focus in the short term. Later on, we'll continue to get some more sophisticated transaction types. And there are different types of mechanisms of procuring and and holding and getting access to different types of carbon and other environmental markets. But in the short term, it's really just a matter of focus. It's really how do we do a few things really exceptionally well for a lot of different people across a couple of geographies and then grow to the next thing. Wonderful. We wish you all the best to you and the patch team for that. And we'll put the links uh, in the show notes for people who find out who want to find out more. And I just want to thank you very much for your time, Brandon. Thank you so much, George. Really appreciate it. And uh, please send me the first first look at your class. Hopefully I can get up to speed on, on DeFi and what all the hype is about. Sure thing. Thank you.